Uh, good to see a full house here at Hudson. Uh, I am Hussein Hatmani, Director for South and Central Asia here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, welcome to our discussion on Pakistan's elections and the prospects after the election. Uh, on July 25th, Pakistan had its third successive elections since restoration of civilian rule after the ouster of General Parvez Musharraf in 2008. Uh, the results were somewhat foretold, with the pre-polling environment being muddied by allegations of uh, blatant meddling by the country's all-powerful military and judiciary, uh, as well as restrictions on the media. Uh, the result was a disputed plurality for cricketer-turned-politician Imran Khan and his Pakistan tehreek insaf PTI uh, party. And Mr. Khan is already being identified as Pakistan's next prime minister and potential savior uh, by his supporters. Uh, it has been argued that Mr. Khan won with the support of a younger generation of Pakistanis eager to rid the country of the politics of corruption and patronage. Uh, with no prior experience of government, Mr. Khan is being painted as a can-do leader. Unlike other Pakistani politicians, he has not been presented to the world as financially corrupt, though many of his views and his frequent U-turns on, on different issues, uh, coupled with the circumstances of his success, have raised questions both about his comp potential competence and his integrity. He has also often adopted hyper-nationalist positions, including anti-India and anti-American rhetoric, and showed sympathy for religious extremists, including the Taliban. Critics believe that this election will make little dent in Pakistan's reputation as a crisis state. But those who are optimistic say that this may be the birth of a new Pakistan. Pakistan's problems have deep roots and addressing them requires a fundamental shift away from the narrative that has brought the country to its current state. That would need more than one election, and certainly more than one cult figure to resolve. Uh, to discuss the context of Pakistan's election, its impact on US-Pakistan relations, and what to expect moving forward, we have with us a knowledgeable panel. To my right is Professor Christine Fair, Provost's Distinguished Associate Professor in the Security Studies Program within George, uh, Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. Her research focuses on political and military affairs in South Asia, which includes Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. Uh, one of her recent books it was Fighting to the End, The Pakistan Army's Way of War, published by Oxford University Press a couple of years ago, and we were fortunate to have Dr. Fair here at Hudson to discuss that book when it was launched. To my left uh, is Dr. Muhammad Taqi, assistant professor at the University of Florida. He's a columnist for The Wire and former columnist for The Daily Times in Pakistan. His interest areas include Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, and the United States' South Asia policy. Uh, Dr. Taqi lends his expertise as a regular commentator on current affairs for Radio Free Europe's Pashto service and the uh, Pashto service and uh, the other services of Voice of America. Uh, Dr. Taki grew up in Peshawar, Pakistan, and has had a lifelong association with the liberal Pashtun nationalist movement. 
Um, I realize that both our panelists today have been consistently critical of Pakistan's policy direction, especially the role of its military and various jihadi groups that call Pakistan home. Uh, we had hoped to include someone with a somewhat softer view on Pakistan, but August is a difficult month to find panelists in Washington, D.C. Everyone we wanted as our third panelist is either out of town or was otherwise unavailable. So that has put me in the difficult position to try and dutifully put forward some of the questions that are generally raised by those who believe that Pakistan is not sufficiently understood by Americans, or that its complexities are ignored, or that it is, quote unquote, bashed frequently in the international media. Of course, we cannot guarantee that those who have imbibed the official Pakistani narrative will be satisfied by what we accomplished this afternoon, but we will try to accommodate their perspective in the course of our discussion. Uh, my own views can be found in my books, including the latest one, Reimagining Pakistan, Transforming a Dysfunctional Nuclear State, as well as, 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 well as in articles on our website, www.hudson.org, or www.southasiaathudson.org. Today, I will try to be the moderator who helps the audience learn not only the perspective of our knowledgeable panelists, but also those who are not present here. So let us begin, Dr. Taki. Uh, tell us what you think about the elections and why you are skeptical about Pakistan's evolution as a democracy as a result of these elections. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. And great to be on the panel with Professor Fair. Um, I think I should just say off the bat that uh, this was not quite an election. It was an election heist. Uh, back in 1970, uh, there was an election in which the mandate was stolen after the election. Uh, in 1970, we had West Pakistan and East Pakistan. Uh, East Pakistan voted overwhelmingly for Awami League. And afterwards, uh, their mandate was rejected, which ended up in the independence of uh, Bangladesh. This time around, it seems that the mandate was stolen before we went to hustings, before we went to polls. And a systematic and pre-planned uh, pre-poll rigging was undertaken. Um, leading up to the day of the polling, on the day of the polling, and even after uh, the polling day. To me, uh, this is essentially uh, an experimentation which has been carried out ever since uh, 1958. Uh, this is an exercise in political engineering that we just saw happening. And why do we keep getting that exercise in political engineering? And uh, the usual suspect always is the Pakistani military establishment. And even that is a euphemism, because Pakistan Navy and Pakistan Air Force have nothing to do with anything of that sort. It is actually the Pakistan Army who called the shots. Uh, so this experimentation has actually gone on since 1958, when Field Marshal Ayub Khan first took over in a coup d'etat and toppled uh, the civilian dispensation of that time. He introduced a system of uh, what was called basic democracy at the time. We saw another formulation of that same uh, controlled democracy when we went into the 1970 election. Uh, uh, another military dictator, General Yahya Khan, uh, 
at his coterie of generals, they came up with what was famously known as uh, General Sher Ali Khan Patori formula, basically to handpick uh, patriotic uh, political parties. We saw that again under General Ziaul Haq. He created a National Assembly and Parliament, which was elected uh, on a party-less basis. Political parties was, were not allowed to contest. Same thing happened again when General Musharraf took over. Tec uh, a government of technocrats was formed, uh, cobbled together. Uh, eventually, that did not work. And another uh, parliament, which was cobbled together in 2002, it, one of the most tainted elections. So this, uh, to me, the, the 2018 election, since 1970, it is perhaps among the top three most tainted elections uh, and in the manner it was conducted. And even more than that, after uh, now that the dust has settled on the results, uh, there is a complete blackout of actually analyzing the election results. What went wrong? Uh, people you mean are, in the Pakistani media. In the Pakistani media, uh, there is there is a, a, almost an undeclared ban, a censorship uh, in the in the tele media. You cannot use the word rigging on the media. Uh, voices are muted over columnist after columnist who wrote. Up, Leading up to the election, their columns were dropped when they were critical of the military's role in the uh, pre-election rigging. And now after the elections, uh, very seasoned columnists, respectable names, former parliamentarians who have been writing in uh, newspapers regularly, their columns get dropped. Thanks to social media and other websites, we get to read what they wrote. And we know that uh, no criticism whatsoever is allowed of what this exercise was. So if there was nothing to hide, why the censorship? So that sort of tells us that something went wrong and something was fishy. Before I go to Dr. Fair, you've been saying, you know, the run-up of the election. Sort of uh, give us a little more detail. Explain what you mean by uh, pre-poll rigging. What constitutes pre-poll rigging? See, uh, back in the day when elections were manipulated, uh, ballot stuffing, the election day stuffing used to be the uh, uh, primary mode of election rigging. Uh, over the years, uh, with the advent of social media and uh, handy phone cams and uh, so on and so forth, the election day rigging becomes a little bit difficult. And uh, when the idea is actually to manipulate a mandate, you set things into motion ahead of time. And I would go back. Like to, what? what I, I, would go, I would go back to 2013, when actually Nawaz Sharif took over as prime minister for the third time. You need to understand what went wrong between Nawaz Sharif and the military. Why, why actually they wanted to kick the man out. And the critical beef that he had with the army was a treason case against a former dictator, Musharraf. That was uh, the problem that they had from day one. His peace overtours to India. Musharraf want, uh, uh, the Nawaz Sharif wanted to put wanted Musharraf, to put on, Musharraf trial on and the military didn't want The him. trial had already been started in the previous government. Nawaz Sharif wanted to prosecute that trial forcefully. And that was the, the beef between the army and Nawaz Sharif. So that's where the, the trouble started. First, the attempts were made to actually bring, bring down Nawaz Sharif's government through street protests. Pakistan's former defense minister went on record to say that two ISI directors, one a sitting director and one a former director, were orchestrating a sit-in protest in Islamabad in which a political party, namely Pakistan Tariq Saf, actually surrounded the parliament. Mr. Khan's PTI. Mr. Khan's PTI. So this is the run up to this thing. However, they were not able to topple the government. And Nawaz Sharif remained fairly popular. Uh, 
perchance, uh, Army got a bit lucky when a, a, uh, what became known as the Panama Papers came out, in which Nawaz Sharif's family members were named uh, for financial impropriety. Actually, and they were not named for political financial impropriety in the Panama Papers. They were just identified as owners of offshore companies, along with many others. Along with many others. Uh, so there was dozens of people from, uh, people from Pakistan. And that gave them a break to bring in uh, the, the pincer. They applied the judiciary media pincer on uh, Nawaz Sharif and his party. Uh, something which happened in 1990s, at a time when Nawaz Sharif actually was almost partners with the military, now he had to uh, be put on trial for, for uh, something he did not uh, commit or says that he did not commit. Okay. So media management, judiciary manipulation, and then... Uh, you sense No, no, go ahead. So, uh, and then going on towards uh, the actual election, in which the uh, wheeling dealing is, is very common... Uh, there is a, a set of about 50, 60, uh, 80 families uh, or people in Pakistan who actually switch sides and they basically turn the tables in the parliament. You look at parliament after parliament. The 2002 parliament was cobbled together by some of the same people who were uh, with Pre President Musharraf and so on. So that was uh, among the so things. Basically, that the four things you would say that were done to influence the election result was number one, Mr. Sharif was disqualified. Yes. Uh, he was disqualified by the Supreme Court uh, by demanding that he explain property that he held in London, uh, which uh, would have, which should have followed a trial rather than preceded a trial. So he had a trial oh, after that. he had already been disqualified. Uh, then was came the question of his. Uh, after his disqualification, he was convicted and ended up in prison, which is where he And, and on, on very flimsy legal grounds, yes, I must yes, say. Yes, the legal questions, we could actually have an entire different panel on that. Then the second thing was control of the media. Absolute uh, media control space, of the media. Mr. Sharif, when he went on his tour, uh, his party was not allowed the kind of media access that uh, uh, a, a political party of that uh, position, and the fact that it was the ruling party at the time was denied. And the third thing you're saying is that influential political figures were directed or advised to leave their political parties and join Mr. Khan's political party. Yes, and, and I but, would add a fourth thing here, that a set of uh, religious zealots were introduced in the electoral system in the name of mainstream. Okay, okay. so Dr. Fair, um, why would the Pakistan military go to, I mean, this is one of the questions that the none of us are that innocent, but there are innocents out there who kind of turn around and ask this question, why would they go to such elaborate lengths to, to, to deliver an election result of a certain type in which actually Mr. Khan's party, the PTI, does not have an absolute majority. It has not won convincingly and overwhelmingly, and it will end up having to have many junior partners and a very unwieldy coalition. Uh, why would they do that? Uh, what would be their ob objectives in doing so? Uh, why go through so much trouble? So let's start with the last part of that question. Um, I've looked at a lot of the media coverage of this election. I think you can, you can tell the journalists that less than six months because they are effusive about Khan's victory, that he's broken the deadlock of the two parties in Pakistan. You can tell the more seasoned people who've, who've, uh, for whom this is not their first 
general election rodeo um, because they sort of see what the big picture is and what is the big picture. For all intents and purposes, for things that probably most of us care about in this room, the prime minister is really the mayor of Islamabad, right? His writ doesn't even extend to Rawalpindi because that's where the army has its general headquarters. So most of the things that we care about, US-Pakistan relations, Pakistan's continued support of proxy elements in India, in Afghanistan, Pakistan's perfidy, all of these things that um, Hussein has detailed gloriously in his fabulous book, Magnificent Delusions, and all the things that many of us have howled about since 2001 are simply not in his remit. So why does the army care so much uh, in terms of rearranging the poolside chairs in hell, which is how I describe Pakistan elections? Well, it's very simple. What a prime minister can do at his worst is be what Nawaz Sharif was, right? Which is really a speed bump in the path of the military. The prime minister can create um, political resistance to the core interests of the army. And I think Nawaz Sharif really did do this. He did this in a number of ways. He campaigned on wanting to have a, at least an economic normalization with India. He was very much um, beloved uh, amongst the, the Mombatiwalas, you know, the folks with the peace candles. He also vigorously argued for having Afghanistan as a neighbor, not a client. And of course, he wanted to hold the military accountable for coups. Now, interestingly enough, Musharraf committed treason twice, but he, he only wanted to try him for one. So, and he had some support for these things. And this is why the army went out of its way to emasculate him politically. So the best prime minister will be one that lubricates the army's agenda. Someone that creates uh, public support for the things that the army wants to do to keep in balance this trifecta of the military, the militants, and the mullahs, right? So what was at stake for the Pakistan army is that they had to get, they had to make sure that Nawaz Sharif, his party, the PMLN, wasn't gonna have a surprise victory. So I was actually an election observer in 2013, and all things equal, that wasn't the worst election. But from my point of view, this election probably has the closest analog to this election was 2002 in the sense that many of the, the dog and pony tricks that the ISI brought out had been done in that 2002 election. So just sort of give you a sense. So um, the, the most important thing that happens before an election is really cobbling together a coalition of the willing as well as a loyal opposition, right? And this happened in 2002 really quite quickly. And one of the ways, and you know, to sort of build off what, what Dr. Taki said with a little bit more granularity, um, they went to specific parties and they picked off specific leaders. And they said, you can either join the PMLQ, which was Musharraf's king party, and we're going to give you, you know, ministerial position, or you know what, we're just going to bring up corruption charges and it's going to suck to be you, right? And, and when they do this, you got to remember, if, for those of you who don't know about South Asian politics, it's not just the politician that you're plucking off. You're actually plucking off their vote bank. So some of the most important turncoats, uh, in fact, the, the PTI had been labeled the Pakistan turncoat industry um, long before this election, right? Um, they picked off several PPP leaders. And two-thirds of their candidates 
exactly. belong to other parties just before the election. That's right. And so what, what's so interesting about these candidates is many of them are Gaddi machines, right? So these will be traditional spiritual leaders, and they have a large vote bank with them. So if you're just thinking, well, what's the big deal? These folks are defecting. You have to remember what's actually defecting is that particular leader and taking their vote bank with them. The 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 rise of this new tool, the judiciary, is actually, to me as an analyst, the most interesting. Because for the first time, the Pakistan army didn't have a lot of options, right? So when it had 58-2B, which was a Zia-era constitutional amendment that they could put pressure on the president to prorogue the parliament, that was easily done. But Zardari got rid of 58-2B with the 18th Amendment. Actually, Zardari may be criticized for all sorts of things, but he did something that was quite extraordinary. He voluntarily gave up the sweeping powers of the presidency and restored Pakistan to a parliamentary democracy. So the Pakistan army had to scramble. How does it undermine a sitting prime minister without its trusty 58-2B? Well, this is, and we, we saw this um, in Zardari's period, it began engaging in these street shenanigans, right? Remember, some of you guys re might remember the cleric from Canada, Tahrul Qadri, and he actually had, amazingly, a shahadat-proof box that he roamed around in. Now, the parliament, the, excuse me, the provincial police chiefs do not have armored vehicles in Pakistan, but th this guy appears out of nowhere, like he just lands from Canada with a shahadat-proof conveyance, right? And they were able to shut down. Other proof means martyrdom proof. Martyrdom one, proof. One, one that cannot be blown up or whatever. Yeah, you can still blow up, you know, provincial police chiefs. But this guy all of a sudden has this secure conveyance where he can roam around and rabble-rouse. And he and Imran Khan shut down the capital for weeks with these containers, these dharnas. Now, where in the world does this kind of money come from? Right? I mean, please, it's like you know the Trump administration. Just watch what goons are making the money. Uh, uh, yes, but going back to this election, an election fraud, okay, stealing so of elections. We, but let's we, go, can we go back to the judiciary and Sadiq or Amin? We, we, we'll come to the judiciary okay. in a second. Let me, just, let me just say, I've heard both of you, and I generally know the, uh, the subject, so I can say I understand what you're saying. But, Try to answer people who are saying the following. Number one, there's a young, uh, Pakistan has a youth bulge. There's an extremely youthful young population. This young population did not like politics as usual. Uh, some of them actually have a cult-like adoration for Imran Khan. After all, he was the cricket hero who brought the uh, Cricket World Cup uh, in 1992 to Pakistan. Um, uh, and he hasn't been accused of corruption himself, partly because he's never been in government. You've never been in government. You don't pay for government <laughs> funds. But that is a fact. And then people were frustrated. And of course, Mr. Nawaz Sharif, the accusations against him, irrespective of the legal niceties not being observed, there are many people who do believe them. And they think that uh, the two major political parties, their leaders were corrupt. So, so these are the factors that made a large number of people uh, turn against uh, the old uh, political leadership and saw uh, potential in Mr. Imran Khan uh, to be the leader of a new era. They voted for change. Um, how is any of this wrong? Uh, of course, he's, the, the PTI still got 16 million votes compared to the PML, which is Mr. Nawaz Sharif's party's 12 million votes, and the PPP's 6.5 million votes. So that's about 
18 and a half million votes for old Pakistan and 16 million for new Pakistan. But there was a desire for change amongst a segment of the electorate. Would you say that there wasn't? What I would say is that none of this is new. Um, and, and I'm just going to sort of dovetail into what, what uh, Chris was saying about the judiciary and, and media. I, the judiciary media pincer is the oldest trick in the military's playbook. And I'd take you all the way back to 1958, uh, October or so, Ayub Khan declares martial law. April 1959, they take over at gunpoint Progressive Papers Limited, Pakistan Times in English, Imroz in Urdu, and Lalo Nahar a weekly, which was founded at the uh, instructions of uh, Qaeda-Azam Muhammad Ali Jinnah. They take over that. And in August 1959, they do the anti-corruption drive, which was called EBDO, Elected Bodies Disqualification Ordinance. And the first man to be targeted was Hussain Shaheed Sorwardi in that. And that man had formulated in uh, one of the prestigious uh, uh, publications here, Foreign Affairs in 1959-57, a vision for a nation state as against Ayub Khan's vision for an ideological state anchored in Islamism and anti-India jingoism. Now, when Ayub came along, it was the same story. He's a good-looking man. He's clean. The people are, are desirous of a change. They want to get rid of the corrupt politicians. Fast forward 50, 60 years now, we are at the same situation. And, and plus that, Ayub got uh, a, a immunity through the notorious uh, uh, Supreme Court. Back then, it was the Pakistan High Court judgment, the Justice Munir, federal uh, court. Federal, Pakistan federal court, a judgment was passed. Same things. So okay. media, judiciary, and the political uh, manipulation. So yes, I can understand that there can be uh, the youth bulge and the youth vote. But keeping the electorate divided and manipulating the old electoral system is what gave PTI the edge. And that was not possible so, without the, uh, as she pointed out, back in 2002, General Itasham Zamir was managing the election cell. We don't know who is managing it this time. Nawaz Sharif has actually named a name, uh, General Faz, uh, who's in charge of the counterterrorism at the ISI, Mia Saab has named the name, so uh, there's, there's people who are going okay. out and okay. actually okay. Let me, let me, flipping let, people. Let me try and reduce this into a sort of abbreviated form. That Basically what you're saying is that in Pakistan, once the establishment, the military and the intelligence services make a decision about how domestic politics has to move, then the courts... Uh, give judgments that enable that particular agenda to be moved forward so a person can be described as corrupt or whatever. And the media then jumps in into creating that image of their corruption. Uh, for example, Mr. Khan himself uh, and some of his associates also had offshore companies and offshore properties. Yes, and that did. didn't become the same level of issue that Nawaz Sharif's uh, offshore holdings became. And then if you read Pakistani papers, you will be told that there are $200 billion of Pakistani, quote-unquote, looted money in foreign banks. There, that figure has just come out of a hat because, because no, there's no study, nothing that indicates that. Uh, the property that Mr. Sharif is supposed to have in London is believed to be worth £7 million. At the best exchange rate, that would be, what, $10, $11 million dollars? So it certainly doesn't run into billions. But then the media jumps in, and they go and sort of describe it as billions of corruption, and that's the reason of our poverty. 
but surely that does move the electorate a little bit too. So do you think, Chris, and you can come back to your judicial part while you are answering this question, without wandering off discussing countries in North America and their politics rather than <laughs> Pakistan's. Um, um, well, I'm going to do that. So, <laughs> no, so yeah. tell, me, tell me more about how, I mean, obviously the electorate is affected by this, but even then, the result does not manifest a total disillusionment with the old guard. I mean, yes, the PMLN lost a lot of seats, and uh, uh, the number of people who voted declined in percentage terms, not in absolute terms. There was about 2 or 3% less uh, turnout than, than the last election. So obviously, PMLN supporters didn't turn out uh, in that number. But still, 12 million votes for the PMLN and six and a half or something million votes for the PPP. And then the MMA also got, the religious parties also got their segment of the vote. So in terms of Pakistani society, still, um, we have to contend with the reality that those who have been described consistently by the media and by these judges as corrupt and bad and evil and even treasonous, they still have a significant following. How will this? actually result in the complete triumph of one narrative. Obviously, this will continue to be a fight that is ongoing. Look, I, I take your point. I, I'm going to put this in a more structural sense. I think democracies, and Pakistan has democratic features while not being a fully functional democracy. I think democracies all over the world are actually wrestling with this question. Millennials are not happy, and many of you are millennials, I can see, are not happy with the electoral systems in, in which we live, right? And I will say what um, I find very uplifting about Pakistan's millennials is that they have been very involved with PTI now for what? At least a decade, right? And what PTI has done is that, leave, leave, we're gonna deal with the, the rigging in a second, what PTI has done is that Imran Khan, for all of his problems, by the way, problems really for the army, right? He could have been prime minister 10 years ago had he been more willing to play ball with the army, right? He's, a, he's actually a slow learner um, in this regard. But what he, was, what he has done is that he made foreign policy issues that youngsters in Pakistan talked about, right? He's made policy instead of patronage the talking points, right? And I think that's part of the frustration is that, that politicians don't provide policy options or solutions, they provide patronage. Now, by virtue of Imran Khan coming to power in this way, he has been co-opted into that very same system that Pakistani millennials find so distasteful. And I think, like many of us that were hopeful that Barack Obama would do more on certain progressive issues, um, I know many of the, the, the earlier PTI supporters, you know, I taught at LUMS many years ago, I've stayed in touch with them, the older millennials have already become very dissatisfied with Imran Khan. Right? They were much more perspicacious in observing his co-option uh, by the army and the intelligence services. So I don't think the problem is that you have youngsters who want change. Democracies all over the world right now. I, I think about the Indian election. You know, if you're an Indian young person, what were your options between the Congress Party and the BJP? Right? Congress actually began the communalism for which the BJP gets all of the credit. Right? So I think we are all living in a time where our electoral options are highly constrained, even in a democracy like our own, 
we can see the, the perils of democracy. My grouse is not that people want something new. My grouse is when elections are hijacked. And, and, and elections are being hijacked all over the world. So this isn't just Pakistan's problem. It turns out that in Pakistan's case, the primary committer of malfeasance is an internal actor. But what I wish Pakistani millennials would, would understand is the system, right? The, the reason why the PMLN and the PPP are such suboptimal performers as I would argue, and many of us have, is democracy interrupt us, right? No prime minister has ever served out his or her term, right? And it's not because the people rampaged on the street and said, you know, hang the fellow, bring out the punsy. It's because the army manipulated to bring them down. The media is also very much driven by the army. The, the media sends a constant message that these politicians are corrupt slime balls. Now, you know what's interesting to me? No one has ever asked, with the exception of a handful of people, how corrupt is the army? Right? Okay. It is, it's a wounded tomb organization, and we have no insights into their finances. The army literally sits here throwing stones at a glass house. And also, it's important to remember that until Mr. Nawaz Sharif's conviction under very dubious circumstances, dubious because the disqualification came before the trial, that to me is wrong. Uh, the Supreme Court starts the trial process or the legal process instead of the, being the last court of appeal. So these are things that are disturbing. But that said, at least he's been convicted. In the past, we've had a situation where Mr. Zardari, for example, was uh, in prison for 11 years. And he wasn't convicted of a single crime. So there is something essentially wrong there that you charge somebody with corruption, use that as a basis for propaganda for year on, year on, year on. Uh, through a controlled uh, media, and yet you uh, do not bring it to any legal conclusion. But now, well, now we've got. Talk about, I think this. I agree with you, but this Sadiq or Amin ruling okay, is very. That. So, so let. Yeah. yeah the, so the, the Supreme Court <laughs> did not first convict him of financial malfeasance. What it actually said was that he is not sadiq or amin. He's not honest and trustworthy. These terms come from Pakistan's constitution, but I believe it was in 2006 the court had previously ruled that these terms have not been defined. Now, what Mr. Imran Khan, because he's not, you know, the straightest shooting arrow, he's a little bit of a political IED, the army is going to have problems corralling him, but he's going to find very quickly that he can be equally subjected to this arbitrary definition of not being sadiq or amin. We've We've all seen the rumors floating around about Shaukat Khanum and his finances. It's just that the media... Shaukat Khanum is the charity that Imran Khan became famous for, that he established in the name of his mother after winning the 1992 World Cup. It's a cancer hospital. And uh, there are issues that, that you're alluding Absolutely. to about its finances not being completely transparent. And this is in addition to a, a number of peccadillos, if we may say, Okay, let's not get into the peccadillos. No, no, I'm not going yeah, to detail yeah. the numerous exotic peccadillos. <laughs> but, but what I am going to say is that when you have now had a precedent of the Supreme Court saying that a prime minister is not Sadiq or Amin, terms are not used in the Constitution. This Sadiq or Amin is essentially, it comes from Islamic history. Those were the attributes of Prophet Muhammad uh, in, in Islamic history. So the honest and the trustworthy. Uh, and it was put in by General Ziaul Haq uh, when he amended the Constitution arbitrarily 
before uh, restoring the, uh, some semblance of elected uh, uh, segment of government in 1985. And then uh, when the constitution was being re-amended to restore the parliamentary democracy features, ironically, it was Mr. Nawaz Sharif who opposed removing this provision. So he ended up falling to it. Yeah. Question is, will this be used against Mr. Imran Khan or somebody in his government? Now, look, we have six more minutes. I'm going to uh, divide that equally between the two of you, two and a half, two and a half, to talk about uh, sort of where, does, where, where do we see things moving forward. And then I'm going to open it for questions from the audience, which will enable us to uh, clarify things a little bit further. What has been said is that uh, about this election and its outcome, A, it is a disputed election result, but still, uh, Mr. Imran Khan has a lot of support from young millennials who look upon him as a savior. Uh, high expectations, uh, immediate need is for him to perform on the economic front. Pakistan's economy is in dire straits as it often finds itself almost at the time of every uh, political transition. Uh, large amount of foreign uh, payments uh, coming due. Uh, which will require Pakistan to borrow more to pay off previous loans. And at the same time, he's promised a state resembling the state of Prophet Muhammad in Medina. And he says that this is going to be an Islamic welfare state. Um, among the things that people who are saying this election is a positive development is that the Islamist parties, while they got a significant number of votes, they did not get a large number of seats in parliament. So we will have a parliament that will not have too many Islamists in it. My own feeling on that, which you both are welcome to disagree with, is that not having them in parliament may be even worse than having them in parliament, because now they will be, again, free to do the kind of things that they have done in the past of, of, of coming out in the street. So what, what Mr. Imran Khan is going to lead, if he's able to cobble this uh, loose coalition together, because his party does fall short of a majority, then he has to deal with not having a majority in the Pakistani Senate. The next Senate election is not due until 2021. And at the moment, Mr. Khan's party has only 15 seats in a house of 104. So he will have a Senate minority situation. And that will require him to be more compromising. The more compromises he does, the less he's seen as the man of principle that he has projected himself and disappoints his uh, first time voting uh, change-seeking millennials. So how do things move forward? And second, what does it entail for the rest of the world? India-Pakistan relations, which are always important because both countries have nuclear weapons, Pakistan and Afghanistan, and Pakistan and the United States. Each one of you, three minutes, please. Dr. Taki, you go first. Uh, I, I really foresee that. Uh, it is going to be a tough uh, parliamentary course for uh, Imran. He's actually an untrained man. Despite being in the parliament, he hardly actually sh showed up. Well, he uh, attended it, five sessions out of a more than a hundred and some. Yeah, so he was a he was a dead he was he was a deadbeat uh, parliamentarian for that matter. Uh, and the burden that he carries of this election manipulation uh, that is a ball and chain around his foot. Uh, I think I have that up here. This is the uh, Pakistan uh, um, Army's spokesperson, inter-services, public relations director general, tweeting from his verified personal account. Now, this man declared victory before Imran Khan declared victory. 
this, look at the timing of the tweet. Uh, and this is essentially a subtweet citing a Quranic ayah saying that, uh, a Quranic verse saying that uh, whosoever God pleases exalts him, and whosoever God is displeased with, he basically just brings them to dust and dirt. So this was while the election results were rolling in. Now look at this kind of gloating. Army did not go into this situation to actually lose this election on the election day. And the reason being that this is the first time that in the history of Pakistan, a Punjab-based, Punjabi politician with a strong electoral base actually challenged the army's own interest on its own turf. And this is where the, the real uh, issue and, and the friction will lie. Going forward, I think the uh, opposition is still formidable. The Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz and its uh, allies actually end up becoming allies uh, by default, Pakistan People's Party and certain other groups. Uh, they would definitely have uh, a significant role to play in the parliament. But Imran by himself, uh, Chris talked about the policy issues. To me, it looks more like a wish list. I mean, uh, there's, there's very uh, little evidence to show that some of the things that they have been talking about uh, on the campaign trail, they actually have a plan to implement for it. Look at the uh, immediate uh, currency deficit situation and the bailout talk that we have right now going on, uh, whether going to China versus uh, International Monetary Fund and so on. Similarly, on the militancy issue, the man has been sympathetic uh, to the uh, uh, militants. Taliban, he was nicknamed Taliban Khan. Would he be actually to moderate himself? Maybe. But the fundamentals of the Pakistani state where the military preeminence as the Praetorian Guard remains, I think in the foreseeable future that will be there. Uh, it is also uh, important to remember the history that even the meekest of the hand-picked prime ministers have actually picked battles with the army. Uh, Mohammad Khan Junejo came from a partyless uh, uh, parliament in 1985. And when he decided to proceed with Geneva Accords with, uh, with Afghanistan, guaranteed by US and the USSR, Zawal um, uh, Haq uh, had a beef uh, and bone to pick with him, and uh, that whole assembly was dispatched. So I, I think we are uh, in for um, um, some choppy waters, uh, to put it mildly. Okay. Uh, while you were speaking, I uh, looked up the statistic because it had slipped my mind. Six percent was Imran Khan's attendance of parliament uh, in there the you have it. parliament. If he was so, in my class, he would be rusticated. Uh, he, would, <laughs> he, would, he would now have to attend parliament. So let's see how he manages, because he will. The office of prime minister is not like the uh, presidential form directly elected. He will have to go through parliament. He will have to manage a coalition. And for the sake of Pakistan, let us all hope that he can. Chris, your final comments before I turn to the audience on this long list of things I said. Where do we go from here? So the weakness of his coalition in this precarious situation with the Senate, of course, is a feature, not a bug, right? The army wants this. The army didn't want to have a situation that it confronted in 2013, where Nawaz Sharif had a clear mandate. What is, I think, quite interesting going forward is that the army doesn't have any more options, right? Uh, the reason why we have Imran Khan is the army didn't have anywhere else to go. So I think uh, keeping in mind you know, the Junejos of Pakistan, Pakistan's history is, is, is worthwhile, but I still don't anticipate major change on any foreign policy portfolio that matters, because that's just not in the hands of the prime minister. That is always in the hands of the generals. I think for the Americans, we have a really interesting question on our hands. What do we do with the IMF? Right. 
there's a very real likelihood that if we do not cut them off at the IMF, the American taxpayer, who is the biggest contributor to the IMF, will be subsidizing Pakistan's CPEC loans. Now, you'll have to unpack this because you've used an acronym, which is, forbidden, which is forbidden here, unless Correct. you explain what the acronym is. Right. CPEC is the China-Pakistan uh, Economic Corridor. It's part of a, uh, uh, it's, it's a $60 billion uh, plan of China actually building significant infrastructure in Pakistan, linking Pakistan to China. Uh, and critics feel uh, that Pakistan is heavily indebted to China because most of them are in the form of loans. And what Chris is saying is, that if the United States uh, ends up supporting a Pac an IMF bailout for Pakistan, which is being sought about, uh, it said that it could be anything between $8 billion to $12 billion that Pakistan needs immediately to get out of its current difficulties of, uh, uh, of uh, low foreign exchange reserves, then uh, this amount would essentially be used to repay China. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically. Okay. And if we don't do that, then we have an equally unpalatable scenario. And that is, if you look at the Chinese business model, by the way, I call CPEC um, colonizing Pakistan to enrich China. So their business model, and they've done this in Djibouti, they've done this in Sri Lanka, they're doing this in Myanmar, they're trying really hard to do this in, in Bangladesh, which is they basically set a price, and the price is far in excess of what a market price would be. And in that, they roll up all the bribes that it takes to pay off the different corrupt politicians. So it's a very effective mechanism of moving money from the public coffer to private coffers, right? And then when the country, and these, by the way, these projects are not economically viable. We can go through each single one of them. Um, and when the country cannot make the, the loan service payments, China says, oh, great, give us a 99-year lease. Uh, give this Chinese company a, a majority stake in getting whatever money does come out of it. So essentially, they get a sovereign Chinese island. So our choices are subsidizing Pakistan's CPEC adventurism, right? <coughs> or we don't subsidize Pakistan's CPEC adventurism, and we get a little Chinese island there at Gwadar. So neither of those okay. options are terribly so, nice. So basically, I, in terms of U.S.-Pakistan relationship, a, you don't see a major shift, and B, you think that the United States should not be subsidizing uh, Pakistan's uh, uh, repayments to China, as well as China uh, deepening its claws into Pakistan. No, I'm saying that we need to be thoughtful. Okay, um, okay. Right. So, IMF has not, we haven't, in policy-making circles, IMF has been not on the table. But we're not thinking about the cost okay. and benefits of... Okay, we didn't talk, get to talk about Afghanistan and whether we can expect Imran Khan to be more cooperative in American efforts to try and find a peaceful solution or resolution uh, to enable America to come out of Afghanistan uh, in a way in which Pakistan's interests can also be protected. But I'm sure that that will come out during the course of questions and answers. Before we go to the audience, let me just say that this has been uh, a somewhat... Uh, pessimistic view of things. There is an optimistic view, which uh, uh, all of us do not have to share, but should be aware of. And that is that Imran Khan will bring a fresh outlook to government, not having been entrenched in the ways of patronage and corruption that Pakistan's politics has been mired in, that he will have professionals managing various ministries, that a lot of overseas Pakistanis will start trusting the government much more and therefore will be willing to send more hard currency into Pakistan as a result, 
There are attempts to try and raise money from overseas Pakistanis, although the amounts are just staggering. I doubt if people can really put together billions of dollars that easily, but it will still be a positive that investors might actually come to Pakistan because there will be less corruption. And lastly, a better civil-military relationship will enable the country to actually make decisions on uh, foreign policy issues that it has been reluctant to make. So that is the most optimistic scenario. My colleagues to my left and right have already laid out the uh, more critical and pessimistic dimensions. I now am willing to open the floor to questions. Uh, I would rather not have comments because they would become long. And I would like you to ask short questions and bear in mind that a question usually ends with a question mark. And, and requires an answer. So no speeches, please. Raise your hands, and somebody will bring a mic to you after I recognize you and identify you. Yes, right here in the front. Hi, my name is Alyssa Ayers. I'm at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, I wonder if either panelist or moderator would care to address uh, the issue of Imran Khan and his focus on anti-corruption. Professor Fair brought this up a little bit but didn't pursue it further. Do you think he will continue to focus on anti-corruption in a limited sense of only against political opponents, or will this have a broader mandate to look into the issue of corruption writ large, including problems with the military, uh, other problems of Pakistan's budget, and what does and doesn't get spent? Military and judiciary. Uh, Imran Khan's party, PTI, ruled my home province, Khyber Pukhtunkhwa, for the past five years. And their previous 2013 campaign was also about uh, the anti corruption drive and how the uh, old-fashioned traditional politicians have robbed the people blind. Five years on, I don't see a single trial conviction or uh, um, uh, restitution made to the national exchequer or the provincial exchequer from any of those people that he blamed. Uh, there has literally been no uh, accountability process there. You talked about the military. There have been mega scandals involving the military uh, especially in uh, uh, the rest of uh, Balochistan province, where the, uh, the top order, uh, uh, the Inspector General of the Frontier Corps, which is actually a military man, usually of a major general rank, uh, they have been involved uh, in corruption to the tune of uh, millions and billions of rupees. Uh, not a word was said by Imran Khan about that. Uh, and the military's uh, internal audit and internal, uh, basically it was just a wrap on the knuckles for those, those generals. Nobody actually heard about it. Uh, some of his own cronies uh, have been convicted. So, so basically, you think, to answer Alyssa's question, that it will be more political rather than... It's a rhetoric. A it's, it's a great election rhetoric. Do you agree with that, or do you have something else to add? No, I pretty much agree. Okay. I, I, I would argue that there are many dimensions to the corruption problem. Uh, one is this political one, which we've talked about. I think this has been going on for many years. Uh, each government that was ousted during the 90s was ousted on the grounds of corruption. Uh, institutions have been created. First, there were accountability courts. Then there is the National Accountability Bureau, et cetera, et cetera. It always ends up focusing on the politically prominent, because that's where the headlines are. Uh, expanding it 
is likely to create some kind of social unrest as well. I mean, forget about the military. I, let's just not go there. Let's talk about even expanding it just to make it wider on the civil service, etc. These are the functionaries of state. If everybody is paralyzed, which has happened, uh, for example, immediately after Musharraf took over in 1999, I don't know if you remember, many industrialists were picked up for not paying back loans and they were put in, put in prison, etc. Then the entire industrial class and investor class got together and said, what's going on? You can't do this to us. Uh, if you have specific charges, because the method in Pakistan for dealing with corruption is not that you go through the normal channels of prosecution. Uh, if you do it as a political campaign, then your best hope is to find somebody and get him to quote-unquote confess. Otherwise, if they were really capable of bringing good uh, judiciable charges, then situations like Mr. Zardari's 11-year imprisonment without conviction would not have occurred. Similarly, whenever Pakistan has taken a case abroad, like, for example, the famous Surrey property of Benazir Bhutto that was very well publicized during the 1990s, or the so-called Swiss account uh, of SGS Kotekna, uh, $61 million. It was exaggerated. People expected millions of dollars to be. In the end, the cost of filing those cases was the only thing Pakistan ended up with. It bore the cost. It did not get them. So unless Mr. Imran Khan is able to put in place a proper system of prosecution and uh, trial, uh, I think it will end up becoming a political slogan. And if he starts expanding it to try and go for judges and for the military, we will have the same political destabilization that we have always had whenever a political leader has attempted to do that. So that's my answer. Can I add something to this? So corruption is baked into the system. You know this, Alyssa. You've been hanging out in South Asia for forever. So in purchasing power parity, your average judge makes less today than they did under the British, right? Look at what your average beat cop makes. Everyone knows that these folks, including a judge, can't pay even a modest, pay for a modest home and a modest family without taking bribes, right? Everyone knows this. Um, so with, if you're really going to address this corruption issue, you have to then deal with the Public Service Commission, right, and structural changes in the, in the pay table. Now, the question then arises, why doesn't this happen? Well, politicians actually like having a corrupt system that they can manipulate. I think some of the heroes in South Asia are, oddly enough, the police. The police don't want to be corrupt. In Pakistan, you know, you'll, you'll routinely see accounts of someone from the KPK police force unable to stop a suicide bomber with anything else other than his body. And they don't shirk, they do it. So I, when I look at corruption, there's these, th this large corruption that everyone focuses on. But in fact, quotidian corruption is baked in. And um, there needs to be a real discussion. Corruption doesn't happen to you. You choose to participate in corruption, right? So it's it's a pain in the in a particular location to get your car registered, to get your driver's license, and so forth. You know, if you get pulled over, the guy's gonna write you a ticket, and you know that you can just bribe your way out of it. If you want to yeah, make his but, day really lousy, have him write the ticket. But Christine, I mean, I think the whole discussion of corruption in Pakistan has always been focused on politicians' corruption. And not about this whole endemic structural but corruption. I'm talking about both because yeah, yeah, yeah. this you, you it's all it's it's literally baked right. into the system. 
Um, yes, right here. Hi there, Ishan Daru of the Washington Post. Um, just quickly, uh, you know, we have this sense, there's this narrative outside of Pakistan, in India in particular, also in the US, that that nothing will change until we break this logic of the Pakistani military controlling the state, of sort of the inexorable logic that governs what the Pakistani military is doing in terms of its its position versus vis-a-vis -vis India, its position vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and militancy there. Um, what is happening within the military? Is there, do you have any sense of internal discussions, how a new generation of officers are coming in? Do they have this, are they governed by the same kind of imperatives as the earlier generations? Is there some kind of, uh, are there some sort of divisions or factional questions emerging? Um, I'd love to get a sense of what that looks like. So I actually have data on this. Um, so it's on my website, christinefair.net. It was a paper that was published in security studies um, some years ago. Um, it's basically on, uh, it's something like Pakistan's military manpower policies. So what we do know is that, going back to Ayub Khan actually, the Pakistan army understood that if, if they're gonna be seen as an equitable merit meritocracy, everyone has to have the perception that they have an equal opportunity to loot the government uh, while in uniform. And if you know about Pakistan, you know that that's not true, right? If you're below, or if you're Cindy, you don't have an equal opportunity. And certainly before the um, breakaway of of East Pakistan, Bengalis were certainly locked out of the ability to loot the country. So Ayub Khan actually did try to expand the footprint of the army into these others, other provinces. Military manpower is not only driven by demand side considerations, like we the army want this, it's also driven by supply side. And mostly the efforts of Ayub Khan failed because he didn't get the, the supply side response. So what we have seen the Army do in the last several decades is that they have reduced the qualifications to get into the, the Army, particularly the officer corps in Balochistan and Sindh, to try and attenuate the, um, the human capital shortfalls. They've been building these cadet academies, and these cadet academies are not only intended to remediate individuals who will be competent to get into the PMA without these reduced standards, they're also intended to engender a positive sense, right? And then these will often, these are not uncontroversial because folks in Balochistan and Sindh also view these as sort of colonial outposts. Having said this, despite the controversy, we know that these efforts have been successful. Um, we are also fairly confident that these recruits that are coming from Balochistan are not just Punjabis who live in Balochistan. So some years ago, I did a very large survey with my colleagues. We interviewed like 14,000 people. And it's sort of like a natural experiment. And we asked the question, how do Punjabis outside of the Punjab? Just too much yeah. detail. No, no, I'm going to tell him. Yeah. No, this is, dude, you have data isn't like making a brownie from a box. Like <laughs> a vault. He's, Data folks. No, but this is going to your point. Why does this matter? The people who are not in the Punjab do not share critical values that the army espouses about hostility towards India, the belief that they have to liberate Kashmir and all of this stuff. There are very real differences of opinion. All right, so does this mean that this is going to, over time, and there's another really important factor that I think you need to consider. Prior to 2004, the first unit fatality would happen in association with India, either on the LOC, Siachen, which you can rationalize frostbite as like the enemy, right? Because why are you there in the first instance? 
But now the first unit fatality is very likely to be actually from a Pakistani, right, fighting in the, the tribal areas. So for me as an empiricist, um, we're not going to see the putative results of this for some decades. Now, I also you know, work on military manpower issues in general. Um, armies are notorious sausage grinders. And you can put anything in there, and what you get is the same sausage. So we don't know if these people that have been recruited into Balochistan or Sindh, if they're going to have the same retention profile. Maybe they'll just, you know, they'll attrit out. But these are, the, these are, I think, some of the important things that are happening endogenously that give me some hope that we might see something different. But you know, this is a, a very cautious level of hope because armies, after all, try to seek conformity. But there's one thing that you know we can all see: when these guys are out of uniform, they say stuff they would never say in uniform, right? So this also means that even if they do think differently, you have a coordination problem, like the core commanders, right? It's a signaling problem because if you're the only one who thinks this way and you peep up, you're going to be the one out, right? So this is very complicated, but um, I think there are some things that we should be watching as analysts as the decades unfold, particularly the internal operations. So the data-phobe layman's answer to your question is, yes, there is going to be change in the Pakistan military's thinking, but it's going to be a relatively slow and long-drawn process. Uh, I would like to just quickly add, I, I think some of this uh, has actually been tried and tested. We have had military chiefs who were Pashtuns. Uh, and the same process went on. I'll just throw out a name, General Abdul Wahid Kakar, uh, who, who was a Pashtun. On his watch, the Taliban was created and unleashed. We had a democratic dispensation in place. Uh, Field Marshal Ayub Khan himself was a Tareen ethnic Pashtun, but from Hazara. Uh, and Pashtuns have made a large chunk of the Pakistani army, the, the, the second largest section in the army. And over the years, uh, like Chris said, uh, the sausages did come out. It's a melting pot. The army is loyal to the army itself. And some of the things, the military thinking that exists, uh, some of the genuine concerns one can understand uh, about Afghanistan or India. But um, I usually don't like to throw out uh, doctor analogies. But if there is a genuine delusion, I can treat it. But if someone is faking delusion, I cannot treat it. Uh, Pakistan army fakes that delusion about India and Afghanistan. And I don't foresee a change in that delusion coming anytime soon. Although, although. To be fair, I mean, that is something that is up for debate. Is it really fake? Are there genuine concerns, et cetera, for which we will have sure. to have a different panel at some point? Mr. Fratkin there. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> hello, Fratkin of the Hudson Institute. Thank you for a very fine panel. I wanted to just uh, thank uh, uh, Dr. Fair for putting the IMF issue on the table, because I think that will be important. But my question is this. Uh, you, Hussein, and, and your colleagues brought up the Islamic issue but did not say too much about it, but there is this kind of change in the situation that the prospective new prime minister has made that part of his campaign, but the religious parties themselves have declined. And I, didn't, I w was wondering what your sense of how that plays out uh, after that. Well, which one of you wants to take that? Uh, Taki, do you want to have a go at it? Or? I'll take it briefly. Yeah. Actually, Bhutto, I'm afraid of saying this, uh, was very ferociously aligned with some of these nasty elements, right? She went into coalition in the 90s with the SSP, which was a vicious anti-Shia uh, organization. She allied with JUI. Um, 
she, her father, and even her son has been going on and on about the 10,000-year war in Kashmir. So this is, I think, for domestic purposes, right? The army is the one that really calls the shot on these issues. Where I think Imran is most dangerous is not on issues that quite frankly affect us. It's, it's on things that affect Pakistanis. One of his parting words as the campaign wrapped up was basically uh, very pejorative uh, incendiary things about Emides on whom there's already an open season. Um, his, if you, what, what I thought was even more appalling about the pre-poll rigging was was the number of not Islamists, right? Pakistan's Islamists, you know, that we know who they are, we know their histories, but were actually terrorists, right? Individuals associated with terrorist organizations. Labayak fielded some 600 people. The MML, the Millie Muslim League, which is the LET's uh, political wing, they fielded 200. ASWJ, which is the you know new acronym for the SSP, uh, they fielded another couple of hundred. That you actually had, and then of course Huji, which is an, an ally of Al Qaeda, also. Uh, uh, some of the Huji members uh, allegedly joined PTI. So I think this is a watershed, right? We've always had Islamists, but actually having terrorists, that's not true, SSP was also always contesting. But the sheer number of terrorists, in addition to Islamists contesting this election, I thought that was quite notable. I'm glad none of them won, but that's really not the point, right? And this is, oh, by the way, Remember, they, they, they did this right after we, we tossed them that bone of uh, the uh, financial task force. We gave them a gray listing instead of the black listing that they deserved. And what was their response? Oh, yeah, we're going to have like 900 terrorists contest our elections. Okay. Uh, you had raised your hand, uh, gentlemen, right here. Yeah, yeah. This is Mushtaq Rajpur. I write for Pakistan paper, the news. This is exactly what she was saying. Does, do Pakistanis have really to fear PTI? Like A&P and KPK had feared that the PTI might undo the 18th Amendment, you know. So... Uh, I'll quickly take that. Uh, do they have the numbers to undo That the was the, the base. Yeah, it will eventually boil down to the numbers. And the Senate situation as it stands, uh, this is going to be an uphill task. Uh, we know that the Pakistani uh, military is upset with elements of the 18th Amendment, if not uh, totally. For those who don't know, 18th Amendment was a constitutional amendment package after Musharraf. The civilian has brought it together to undo many of the amendments that the military had introduced into the Constitution, including the presidential power to arbitrarily dismiss governments and, and dissolve parliament. Uh, and it also increased the uh, uh, power of the provinces and gave them several subjects that were not previously controlled by them. So uh, I, I don't foresee that uh, it, it's going to be on the chopping block immediately. First, they have to wet their feet, get in there, and how things actually are maneuvered, how things, uh, for all we know, there could potentially be a change in the Senate where the current Senate chairman is thrown out by the opposition parties. Uh, on paper, the numbers do exist, but politics is actually where rubber meets the road. Uh, so. Once we actually get into that, we'll see. But yes, there, there are concerns, and I think uh, one needs to maintain a watchful eye. Uh, a very um, uh, 18th Amendment is something that these smaller provinces have to jealously guard. OK, so I'm going to take three questions together and then get answers to them at the end. First, right there at the back, yes. Hello, Natalie Liu with The Voice of America. A quick question for all of you, perhaps. Um, 
what does Pakistan have uh, going for her uh, going forward? And how could the country take the most advantage of uh, what she has going for her? Thank you. Okay, uh, right here in the front row. Sadanand uh, Dhume from AEI. Uh, I have a quick question about uh, Pakistani foreign policy. Um, I take your point that real power remains with the military no matter who is the civilian in office, but nonetheless, having a civilian prime minister who is, uh, seems to be in lockstep with the military would certainly open up possibilities for what, the, what that foreign policy may be. So what is foreign policy, Pakistani foreign policy, likely to look like? And specifically, uh, what is uh, Pakistan's policy towards the United States likely to look like? And the young lady here. Hi, so my question would be to, I, uh, oh, please. my name is Sana Malik and I work, uh, I'm, a law, I'm a tax attorney here. Um, my question is for Dr. Muhammad Taki and the question is that um, regarding the accountabilities that, that we have the NAB in Pakistan, under that there have been several convictions uh, against Nawaz Sharif himself before uh, under the PCO judges and then thereafter they were viewed and set aside. Do you, um, I want to see what did you have on um, those convictions. Do you think pre, uh, prior to the 2013 elections, was he um, rightly so convicted earlier and then under the PCO judges and later on when those were set aside? And having said that, the follow-up question on that, which everyone can answer is, do you think NAB is, um, is uh, our NAB ordinance in Pakistan and NAB account National Accountability Bureau and the courts. Do you think that system can be um, revised and put into place and a like Imran Khan might be able to uh, revise that and uh, put into place a system that's more workable for Pakistan? Okay, so we're gonna try and do these three and short, short, short answers. What does Pakistan have going for it? What's positive? Um, foreign policy, what direction it could take, considering that it, there will be no conflict between the civilian and the military, or less conflict, and National Accountability Bureau. On National Accountability Bureau, if you two permit, I will give the short answer. It was an institution that was invented by, under military dictatorship. And <laughs> therefore, by definition, it was created in a manner in which its proceedings are not always transparent. Sure. It gave yeah, Musharraf. And it essentially was headed by a military a man for the first several years. It has been an essentially political process. The convictions, the reason why they were set aside was exactly that reason. So the real system of accountability will have to be what it is in every other country in the world. You have prosecutors with prosecutorial authority and discretion. You have courts. You don't need a special institution made for accountability because that's what judiciaries exist all over the world for. And by creating this defi defi narrowly defined accountability system, what we keep doing is we keep political corruption or, shall we say, well-advertised corruption as a separate subject than enforcement of law across the country. So that was my answer to the third. So I've now got two. Which one wants to take foreign policy? Which one wants to take uh, what's great about Pakistan going forward? I'll take what's great. Go ahead. We have a lot of terrorists. 
and they have a lot of nuclear weapons. No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. I'm actually going to make an argument. It's, it's true. Um, because they have the, the fastest growing nuclear program in the world, they'll soon overtake France. It means that they're going to be able to continue uh, coercing the Americans to keep writing checks, irrespective of what our current uh, regime says. And uh, they'll also continue to be able to bully India uh, with impunity. So I think that that's a good thing. They've got an army that can't win a war. They've got nuclear weapons they can't use. So, you know, terrorists under a nuclear umbrella. Cha-ching. Well, I don't think that's what you were looking for. Let me say it's a nation of 200 million people. Sam, let me just say. 200 million people, half of them below the age of 21. Uh, for their sake, we need to have a view of how that those people can, with their productivity, come up with a new direction for their country. I've just published an entire book on it called Reimagining Pakistan. I invite you to read it. Go ahead. I, I, was, I was just going to add to that that uh, I, I, I will never dismiss my own country, a country of 220 million people, very, very resilient people. My own hometown, Peshawar, has been bombed to pulp over the last 10, 15 years. People are still standing up. They're going to school. They're still going to work. And a lot of that disaster is the making of our own army. So we got to give credit to the Pakistani people who are still standing up. They came out and voted. And we still have a vibrant opposition. I think all is not lost. Uh, Chris's book says uh, fighting till the end. Well, uh, if the uh, establishment can fight till the end and their paradigm is that we are not defeated till we are not defeated, same thing for the politicians. We are not defeated till we are not And defeated. the people Absolutely. who support them. Foreign policy. Yes. Uh, Sada's question. Right. Uh, the, the foreign policy question was that if, if, if the uh, uh, political and the military establishment ducks in a row, uh, whether we can actually uh, float towards a solution um, or some, some sort of a rapprochement with India or uh, Afghanistan. I think that, that sort of uh, um, was tried and tested when Musharraf actually held power. Uh, the executive and military uh, were in the saddle. We did not see a whole lot coming out of it because the fundamentals of the, uh, uh, the Pakistani army's thinking remain unchanged. That's why I use the word fake delusion. It's feigned insanity. I mean, if someone is insane, they are insane. But if they're pretending to be insane, that's, that's very difficult. Why do, you think, why do you think they fake delusion? Well, let's, let's, have a, let's have an unpacking of that. I, I, I think, <laughs> yes, let's, let's go back. I mean, we, we are a country which inherited one-third of the uh, British Indian Army. Uh, we have always been top-heavy with the Army from day one. Now, we had an army which uh, was short on funds, which was short on armaments after our first Kashmir adventure. And subsequently, a, a reason had to be invented to actually justify the existence of... Uh, so instead of, instead of having an army that matches the size of the threat, we the have to match size the of threat. the threat has been, create, uh, has been exaggerated to match the size and, of the And the, the other thing is that over the years, the, the military itself has become an economic class. Uh, that's something that uh, Chris pointed out, that the recruitment efforts and whatnot, and that's why it is a melting pot, because the Baloch or a Pashtun or a Sindhi person, once they are past a certain class, they are actually part of that economic system. And, and they're, they're, it's a very, very lucrative economic system. OK, so we are going to be uh, concluding in a few minutes, last round of uh, three questions. So one, two, and the gentleman right at the back. Go ahead. First. Um. Never mind. My question is about 2019 elections. What do you think Pakistan would have expectations 
uh, of the 2019 elections in India, and do you think they will want to play a role in it? Okay. Okay. And the second one was, yes, the gentleman right here. Yeah, hi, uh, Akshor from the Atlantic Council. I just want to touch on some of the economic morass that you pointed out with the IMF loans. Uh, a lot of people in Pakistan talk about CPEC as some economic miracle that will ameliorate all the economic uh, woes right now. But uh, China gives out cheap loans, unlike American aid, and based on Hambantot and a lot of the white elephants, what sort of problems do you foresee for Pakistan going forward with CPEC? And if you can touch more upon those. Uh, okay, I think that that was touched upon somewhat, but we can go ahead. And then the last question right there at the back. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Farid Tavos, and um, my question was, is there any confidence on U.S. side uh, that expects Imran Khan to be a trusted partner? Who to be? Imran, Imran Khan to be a trusted partner of whom? US. U.S. Or the U.S., okay, fair enough. Okay, folks, go ahead. All right, so CPEC will most certainly go forward because that is um, what the Army sees as a really important project. You know, we if you look at the economics of it, it's not a viable economic order. It, it, take something like six times the cost to move one barrel of crude from Xinjiang to Guadar than it does to any other G-lock in China. So this is not an economic quarter. Um, also, I think one of the more interesting things about CPAC is actually not the, the highways, the, the port, and electricity. It's actually agricultural. What the Chinese are really getting is access to Pakistani land to grow their products, right? So Malay Pakistanis don't seem to talk about that. So CPEC will most certainly go forward. Um, it will most certainly be overpriced. There's no reason why it would be any different from what we see in, in Myanmar, Sri Lanka, or, or Djibouti. Pakistan will end up in a debt trap. Yeah, and so this is why I think Americans, we need, we haven't put the IMF on the table. We just sort of, we're on autopilot, but there are costs to going forward with another IMF package, because we actually encourage Pakistani CPEC adventurism, right? There is no, there, it, it's a moral hazard. We're basically saying, we're going to subsidize your payments, go invest away. But if we then don't write those IMF checks, and Pakistan can't service those CPEC loans, then we're going to have a Chinese water. Right? So we don't, we don't even talk about this in the same way that we don't talk about economic stability for Afghanistan. We, they're just things that are just not on the table that I think we really need to have on the table, we really need to discuss. Is it in our interest to continue an IMF bailout? Um, I would argue against that uh, because the IMF bailout is what lubricates the friction that would ordinarily arise between a vibrant civil society and the proletarian interests of the military and the class that it preys upon. Right. So we, we actually subvert democrat, democratization by continuing to, to buy us out. Going on the question about elections, I don't see how they play a role in the Indian elections. I do think they're going to play a very nasty role in the 2019 Afghanistan elections, uh, just as they did the 2014 elections. Those are the, actual, the elections that um, I think there's going to be a lot of bloodshed um, as the Pakistanis use their proxies to to do pre-poll uh, rigging just as they did in Pakistan itself. Can Imran Khan be trusted by the United States? At, at this point, I think it's, it's very early. Uh, Imran's rhetoric against uh, the US policies, especially in Afghanistan, was quite nasty. Uh, Imran was one of the people who actually uh, took to the roads, uh, directly hitting at uh, the US national interest, uh, putting the US uh, servicemen in the harm's way. Uh, a very nasty campaign against uh, the uh, U.S. drone program, 
that was being operated. So I, I think it has to be uh, initially some confidence building measure. If at some point some trust develops, I would always advise trust, but verify. Uh, I don't see him as a trustworthy partner, but that's my view. Ultimately, governments have to do, gov do business with the governments, and uh, that will go on. One thing I wanted to say about the CPAC, the op how opaque that, that, that part is, uh, it, it, it sort of reminds me of the 2008 uh, financial crisis here where we had the toxic assets. People were uh, writing loans to people who could not pay. You know, people were buying houses without the, the, the traditional 20% down payment getting stuff, and ultimately you had these assets which nobody could claim, and they were sold off. And uh, what Chris has alluded to is China is essentially becoming what used to be the East India Company, which eventually uh, colonized uh, the subcontinent. And we have seen that experiment in, in Sri Lanka and Malaysia. And uh, I, I think there's two very horrible examples there. And uh, whatever IMF goes through with, yes, U.S. carries a leverage, but certain strings obviously cannot be attached. But it has to be very transparent and discussed openly and much more. Well, let me end by thanking both our panelists and conclude by saying that in, the most, in, in, in most circumstances, Pakistan is a complex and difficult country to talk about. Uh, this election and its result has made it even more complex and difficult to understand. So let's just keep our efforts in trying to figure out what's going on in Pakistan and rest of South Asia. Thank you all for coming.